This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. If you enjoy this podcast, then you're going to love my free Saturday email newsletter, in which I highlight a handful of things that caught my attention during the week. If this sounds like something of interest to you, just go to thefelderreport.com, click join now right there on the homepage, and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is David Hay. Now, David's been managing money for over 40 years using a tried and true approach steeped in classic value investing paired with an appreciation for technical analysis that can only be developed through vast experience in the markets. What's more, David also has a unique ability to balance a healthy respect for risk management with an openness to opportunities that arise. This has allowed him and his firm, Evergreen GavCal, to thrive even in the most precarious of market environments. In this episode, recorded in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, David discusses how he developed his investment methodology over the course of his career, sharing some of the key tactics and techniques he's come to utilize and how he's putting them to use today. So please enjoy my conversation with David Hay. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. David, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, the the pleasure is actually mine. I'm sitting here on your deck, just uh, distracted by the gorgeous view of the lake. Uh, we're here in Coeur d'Alene. I got to ask you, what what brought you to to Coeur d'Alene? Well, the natural beauty is, is a big part of it. It's uh, it's a very different climate than Seattle. It's one of the better climates to, to be in during the summer, except when you're having heat dome events. It's also great for boating, which we like to do. Our boat's just in the Discovery Marina right around the, the little point here. It's also a great golf setup uh, up the hill. So it's kind of a perfect uh, scenario for a couple of old fogies like my wife and me and our two rescue dogs. You <laughs> well, might hear in the background. It looks like a perfect setup for anybody. <laughs> this is this is gorgeous. It's pretty and, nice. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking out the golf course here in a little bit. But before we do, let, let's focus on uh, you know the markets a little bit. I, I'm curious to know what was it that first got you interested in in markets and finance. <laughs> well, it's a funny story. So that's why I laugh. Is that Back in the uh, the early 1970s, when I was in high school, I like to say that while my friends were buying drugs, I was buying drug stocks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it just seemed like a better use of money. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, I did get involved in the market at that time when I was in high school, and uh, I did buy some. You know, really, that's when stocks were cheap. Even though I guess early 70s, not so much. I mean, that, as you know, that was ready for one of the big bear markets of all time. But I kept buying through that and made money and. Then went off to uni, as my buddy Grant William calls it, uh, at University of Washington, where I had a degree in cinema studies and filmmaking, which is probably, I may be one of the, the handful in the whole world that has that from the University of Washington, not exactly USC or UCLA. And then uh, decided that, I, that being in the film industry and eating weren't compatible. And I just got married, so I thought I'd better try something that might generate some income and maybe work that for a while, then get back into movies. And uh, so I did that in 1979. Went to, in fact, I told my friends that I was going to go to work for a brokerage firm, and they said, oh, really, Coldwell Banker, you know, John L. Scott, which is a big real estate firm. And I no, 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 uh, Dean Witter, and don't they do stocks? And Yeah. Well, nobody buys stocks anymore. Right. <laughs> so it was a very much of a contrarian move. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, my dad thought it was crazy because uh, Schwab had, you know, a few years earlier decommissioned or deregulated commissions, so commissions had plummeted, and 
my father felt like nobody would ever buy stocks for a full service broker and really thought that I would wash out in no time and which you know I actually couldn't blame him but yeah that, that was kind of the beginning yeah well you're you're one of the the few people that I mean I, I was a few years after you but uh, I remember my dad bought an Apple IIe computer like the first per Apple personal computers that came out and bought me a a ge- video game called Millionaire. That was what got me interested in the market. It's the worst, most boring video game you <laughs> can imagine. It's a stock market simulator. Uh, but that's what got me hooked at, at a young age. You, you didn't just, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm curious to, to know a little bit more about uh, what it was in those high school years. Because like you said, um, the stock market wasn't kind of a popular thing um, through that time. So. Well, for your, that game, these days they'd have to update it to be billionaire to get anybody's right. attention. Yeah, I mean, jeez, right. maybe trillionaire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was, I was always really interested in the stock market. And I, I, maybe it's because I used to love reading F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that, that was a lot about the, you know, the boom of the 1920s. And right. So I, I don't know. I just uh, I like stocks. And Boeing, you know, was uh, I think Boeing was one of my first purchases because there was that time when the SST program was canceled, and Seattle was pretty much a Boeing town. And it, the layoffs that happened, uh, I mean, Boeing stock plunged, and there was a famous billboard that said, "Well, the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the lights." Yeah. And it was really like almost a depression kind of scenario. Which you know, fast forward fifty years and think about what it's like now. Right, it's amazing. But uh, anyway, so I bought Boeing when it was extremely depressed and. And some other stocks that were, I mean, that's when you could get companies at extreme bargain levels. And, right. you know, so it was pretty easy to make money. And you know, a lot of it was kind of a money illusion. You know, there was a lot of inflation in the 1970s. So if you benchmarked your stock portfolio for inflation, you weren't doing all that well. Right. But, you know, which is maybe apropos to what we're looking at today. Yeah. And I, and I want to get to that. Uh, but there's, a, you know, so you, you went to work, what did you say, with, for, uh, for Dean, Witter. Dean Witter? Okay. Yep. And yeah, I was then- a Witter critter. And and that basically that's where you learn the ropes from a, the professional side of things and yeah, sort of I mean it you know it was really a smiling done dialing kind of thing I mean sure. it was a I was a cold call cowboy and so I really had to I mean what really triggered my career the the main positive catalyst is that I did believe that I mean that's when interest rates were extremely high I remember buying CDs for clients yielding twenty one percent in nineteen eighty one so wow. my my original plan was to just gather assets. And so there was another young broker in the, in the office at the time. And so we we won all kinds of new accounts. I mean, we were opening 50 new accounts a month, which was unheard of. Yeah. But they didn't have any revenue. <laughs> but we got a new account bonus anyway. Right. So we, they, after after we did that, they changed the rules. So it didn't work that way. But, right. but it actually was a really good thing for us and for the firm because we accumulated, a few, I mean, for new brokers, a ton of clients. And then once interest rates started falling, yeah. You know, when Volcker really broke the back of inflation with 8% real interest rates, hard to believe from where we sit today, then, of course, that launched the phenomenal 1982 bull market. And so we had cash to put in. You know, so people naturally started buying stocks, and, you know, we were off to the races. Yeah. Then by the late 80s, it really dawned on me that, that Dean Winter wasn't the right firm, and also the whole brokerage model was was uh, flawed. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you have to call people and that you're paid on commissions and it became a big battle with Dean Winter management. They didn't want to give me fee-based discretion. They were willing to give me discretion with commissions. And I thought, that's terrible. Right. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, that's really why I left Dean Witter was to go to Smith Barney. We had, my team and I established the, the first uh, 
portfolio manager account. So we really kind of kicked off the what was called the PM program, portfolio manager program at Smith Barney, which is booming to this day. And and a few years later, Smith Barney bought uh, Shearson, which had the old EF Hutton, and Hutton had a great PM program, way better than ours. And mm-hmm. so we you know we found out we were the minor leagues and they were the major leagues. And yeah. but it was it was great to tag on with those guys. Yeah. Fast forward to today, and now you're the co-CIO of Evergreen, uh, Evergreen Gave Cal, and I'm curious to know, uh, you know, why did you start Evergreen in the first place, and where did the Gave Cal partnership come from? So Evergreen was in existence in the early 80s, uh, started by another gentleman, Bill Carr, and I think Bill's grandfather was the first SEC commissioner in the Northwest in the early 30s. Just a little piece of trivia. So it was really his firm. He'd sold most of it to uh, the guy that hired me in the business, Larry Morris. And in 2002, I basically bought out most of Larry's interest and kind of over the years bought out the rest. Uh, but it was uh, really it started out as, as managing money for funeral homes, believe it or not, mm-hmm. and still does manage a lot of because they have endowment care funds that have to be kind of balanced and conservative. Right. And so it's kind of a natural fit for us. And then about 2006 or seven, I met Louis Gobb at a John Malden conference and we hit it off and he was getting our newsletter. We were getting his stuff. And then, I don't know, somewhere around 2010, after the financial crisis, I approached him and said, Louis, why don't you buy part of Evergreen? Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd always had an interest in the private wealth management business because they think it's very sticky and, you know, they're more on the institutional side, which is a little, you know, a little more fickle. And yeah. so anyway, we just, we, to say we're friends probably understates. It's almost I consider Louis and his, uh, his wife Kelly be like family. Mm-hmm. So it's really a very strong bond, and uh, it's just it's evolved over the years. And we often have disagreements. So we've had a number of disagreements over the years in terms of you know kind of the macro calls. But I found that when we line up on things, uh, it's we're usually right. Mm-hmm. But he is a he's a great speaker. You've heard him speak, and he's a great writer and. Uh, I'm just, uh, it's, it's, a, we're amazingly fortunate to be aligned as closely with them as we are because as you and I talked about pre-show, uh, GovCal has virtually every major money manager on the planet as a client mm-hmm. and they have a lot of interaction with these folks. So they get some great Intel from their client base. So it's, uh, it's worked out really well for us. He's expanded his ownership and we've grown enormously. Uh, when he first invested, we were a little under a billion of AUM. We're now about three and a half billion of AUM. And mm-hmm. so we feel very fortunate. Yeah, it seems like just a, a natural fit. I did uh, have Louie on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was now. And, I, and uh, you know, that was, we did that virtually. I'd love to do one in person if I ever. Uh, can can meet up with him uh, geographically. Um, Just got to get to Vancouver Island, it's, which right now isn't easy. Yeah, but supposedly yeah. in a couple of weeks we'll be able to do it. I'm hoping to get up there. They, they're going to open the border. I want to get to Banff and, and explore around up there a little bit. But it's uh, beautiful. That, so part of that, the, the process, uh, the investment process now is you have regular conference calls or meetings with Louis and and the, and, and his team to help kind of. Uh, discuss and shape the investment philosophy for for Evergreen. Um, you were mentioning one you recently had. You know, we were both actually talking about uh, a recent interview Grant did uh, on on the topic of tether, and uh, you know, it was I think you know fascinating listen to to kind of dig into tether and and the the underpinnings behind you know the majority of what goes on in Bitcoin. Um, do you have you know thoughts thoughts there in in terms of you know cryptocurrency tether et cetera? Well, I do, and I will 
put out a disclaimer that I've never bought for myself or for a client any crypto. And have, in fact, actually, just as a little interesting footnote, you were and I talking about this again pre-show, is that I'm going to finish my book that I started writing through EVA, through our newsletter, the Evergreen Virtual Advisor, back in late 2017, early 2018. And the catalyst of that book, which is called Bubble 3.0, and the subtitle is How Central Banks Created the Next Financial Crisis, was that that enormous bubble in Bitcoin that happened in 2017. And I thought, okay, this is, I mean, truly the biggest bubble ever, which is really saying something considering what's happened in recent years. And of course it imploded. But amazingly, like nothing in, you know, this in financial history, there's never been anything like this that where the bubble, you know, goes parabolic, then it, you know, t- as typical, it goes down 80%. I mean, it's amazing how often that happens when something goes, you know, straight up the asymptotic rise, and then it falls 80%. But this time it actually then came up not only to its old high, made a new high, and then tripled. It's just completely unprecedented. So I actually wrote another EVA, Evergreen Virtual Advisor newsletter that we publish every Friday on uh, Bitcoin. In fact, in the old days, I used to call it Bitcoin. Yeah. And so the title was Bitcoin No More. I basically said, it, it there's clearly something durable about this that I didn't think was the case back in 2017. But I also warned that, you know, the price was nuts and that there was a tremendous amount of leverage involved uh, on the buy side that was causing that, you know, that tripling off of what had been the biggest bubble ever. Yeah. And that's where it's so fascinating to hear what Grant and his interviewees had to say. So it was Bennett Tomlinson, George Noble on this podcast that Grant did just last week. And I will be summarizing that in an EVA coming up here very soon. But the tie-in with Louis is that Louis has heard a rumor from a source that he has a lot of faith in that Tether is going to have some very serious regulatory problems soon. Now, it wouldn't be shocking given what they've already done with the New York Attorney General's office. They've already paid a what was it, $18 million fine, something like that, and they've right. been prohibited from business in, in New York State. But it, the story is just astounding. I mean, I don't like one of them said, I think it was George Noble said, if you were the most uh, out there Hollywood screenwriter with a wildly fertile imagination, you never would have created a story as incredible and as brazen as this one is. I mean, it really is, you know, a new age virtual digital Ponzi scheme. And the stuff that they've done in terms of things like depositing money into a bank and calling it their money at, at the point of time of making this public statement or attestation, and then the next day taking out you know, a few hundred million dollars the next day and thinking like, okay, well, we, we passed the test and you know, move on. And, and you know, having uh, agreements signed between supposedly arm's length agreements signed by the same people on both sides. I mean, or and a, a bank involved that is apparently now paying over a hundred percent interest rate to lend against Bitcoin transactions, uh, but it's it's tether that to me seems like is the is the absolute uh, you know that's the 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 biggest flaw the, the biggest flashpoint is tether. I mean, it's for one thing, it's it, it has had an explosive increase over the last nine months or so. It was about a four billion dollar market cap went to a sixty four billion dollar market cap. And that increase or value that you know tethers outstanding was a tremendous propellant for Bitcoin itself. And I think those people that are blowing it off and say, "Ah, tethered," you know, if they get you know nuked by the, Fed, the the Feds or the regulators, no big deal. But it is a huge deal because, as you know, the the float of Bitcoin is not all that big. 
Right. You know, it's maybe 20% of its total market cap today of about, I think, $600 billion. It's about $120 billion of float. And if Tether's $60 billion of that, that's, that's a big deal. And if that $60 billion goes away or if it's proven to be, you know, basically counterfeit, mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, that could have a huge ripple effect through the whole crypto world. But I think the, another aspect of this to talk about, I'm going to quit this, uh, this monologue, but uh, just what this means in terms of the overall financial system. And, and one of the comments made was that, uh, I think from Jim Chanos, that this is the golden age of white-collar crime. And I, I think that's really what's maybe more beyond this, this tether thing than just cryptos. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I've been noticing broadly um, is that uh, I, I think it was uh, uh, Charles Kindle, Kindleberger's book where he talks about uh, you know you're near the end of the cycle when more and more frauds you know start becoming uncovered. Correct. That uh, you know the 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 impetus to take the money and the and run is just too strong uh, for for a lot of these things. And, and it's you know we've seen it in so many different areas. Whether it's you know these spacs uh, where you know they don't have a real product uh, in, in a lot of the. Uh, the uh, uh, you know financials and things are you know just so out there, and that and that's why they're going public via SPAC is because they they uh, you know need to be able to use the most aggressive assumptions and and, and things. But uh, in terms of you know you, you talk about Bitcoin as a bubble, and and you mentioned your book um, that that you're in the process of writing. Uh, let's get to the you know that that more broader um, discussion of markets. You started in, you mentioned, the late 70s, professionally, 79, 80, something like that. What a wonderful 79. time. Yeah, Jimmy to, Carter to, was in the White House. To begin, yeah. Many presidents so, ago. You're right. And so you have four decades plus of, of Don't remind me. firsthand market experience. Now, uh, I'm curious to know just, you know, I, I guess maybe you can talk a little bit more broadly about what you're looking at, what you're writing about for the book in, in terms of markets more broadly. Well, so much of it comes down to the Fed, and and I do read people that I respect to say, "Come on, you know, the Fed's gotten a, a bum bum rap, <clears throat> too much criticism." But I don't think so. I, I think you know, there's obviously been a number of guilty parties in what's happened to this country over the last twenty years. And I guess that's really kind of my overarching point that I would make is if we think back to two thousand two thousand one before nine eleven. I mean, this country was in such fantastic shape, I and mean, we were running budget surpluses. Right. I mean, we were. We had a boom, but it was a real boom. It wasn't a boom, you know, with fake money. It was, you could say that it was crazy valuations with internet stocks, which, you know, that needed to get flushed out. But, you know, that's happened in the past and the country and the economy has moved on from those kinds of things. Uh, but it was the, so, so I guess I would just stop and say, just think about how much this country has devolved in the last 20, 21 years. I mean, I remember the late sixties, which was a time of enormous social division and dissension in this country, but nothing like this. And and the p- policymakers that are in charge today versus who was in charge in the late 60s or certainly 20, 21 years ago, I mean, the, the 1990s was a true economic boom, and it was, you know, the Clinton years. It was, I'd say it was bipartisan, you know, success yeah. with rational policies and, you know, welfare reform, reform and then and creating those budget surpluses. I'm so old, I remember when, well, I mean, this was halfway in my career, but I think most people have forgotten that Greenspan testified before Congress. He was worried that in 2010 there would be no government bond market because all the debt would have been paid off. And right. 
I remember thinking, are you crazy? What about the next recession? What's going to happen then? And of course now, you know, our debt is just astronomical and, uh, well, you know, it was pushing thirty time, trillion. Yeah, twenty years ago was certainly a time of more middle of the road politics. You had yes. moderate, moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, yes. and kind of you know seeing eye to eye on a lot of a lot of things. And today, you know, it's become so much more polarized, right? Which, like you said, we haven't seen this for a long time. You you've written a couple of very interesting, you know, evas about this topic about you know the increasing polarization. Yes, and and, and kind of what that means for the economy and. Absolutely. And, and to get back to that time, was, you know, so 9-11 happens and that was a shock. The tech bubble implodes. That was a shock. NASDAQ goes down about 80%. <clears throat> but what does the Fed do? The Fed, with a lot of pressure from people like Paul Krugman, who was so concerned that the implosion of the tech bubble was a cataclysmic event for the economy, that the Fed had to create another bubble. He literally wrote and pleaded with the Fed to create another bubble and he suggested housing. And they did exactly that. So as the economy recovered, the Fed left interest rates at extremely low levels, which triggered, you know, that you know, unprecedented, you know, sorry to use that word, but it really was a uh, housing bubble and, and the unbelievably reckless mortgage lending that, that went along with it. And then Krugman at the end starts saying, oh, you know, didn't really mean it to go quite to this extreme, but, you know, the genie was out of the bottle, which is what happens with these things. So that bubble, of course, it, it almost takes the whole global financial system down when it pops. The, the housing bubble of the, you know, the really – uh, hit its apex in about 2007. And so then what does the Fed do at that point? Then they not only cut interest rates down to virtually nothing, then they start the infamous QEs, which if you were to go back and to listen to Bernanke testify before Congress were meant to be temporary. Right. And here we have the mother of all QEs happening today. Yeah. Well, that was one of your my, my quotes of, of yours that I, I enjoyed, you know, and I, I guess turning the topic to inflation, you wrote – uh, consider these past government uh, predictions of temporary, the income tax after World War I, payroll withholding during World War II, closing the gold window in 1971, and quantitative easing in 2009. Right? We were all told those were going to be temporary, and now we're being told inflationary is, is, is a temporary or, you know, uh, phenomenon. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, I, I think that's right. It, it's fascinating that Clearly, in my my view, the markets are pricing in this transitory narrative that they're they're taking the Fed at their word. Absolutely, whereas, they are. You know, as you point out, um, you know that that's that's kind of a dangerous game. A lot of these things that we're told are temporary be, end up becoming permanent. Precisely, you know, I think it was Milton Friedman said, "There's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program," and uh, those are very true words. I think Reagan co-opted him, but yeah, it's a. Uh, in fact, to your point, I just saw a survey that 75% of portfolio managers, so not economists, but actual people that run money, are believe it is transitory versus a quarter that are like me that say, well, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, I, the, clearly there are parts of this inflation surge that the Fed did not see coming, as they rarely see anything coming. They have about the worst forecasting record you could ever have. As you know, they've never predicted one recession in advance. But they admit they were totally shocked by how strong inflation has been this year. They were shocked by how fast the economy came back. They've been shocked a lot. And I do sense some humility in their in Jay Powell's manner here lately, which is refreshing to see. And as I said, it's well-earned humility. Uh, but, you know, if you look at things like used car prices, those that inflation is transitory. Obviously, lumber prices, very transitory. Lumber's down 70%. So that's going to have, you know, some 
definite benefits for people looking to buy homes. But a lot of things aren't transitory, and I, that's what I worry about is that, that you've had basically this giant head fake because people have been so focused on these commodity prices that were clearly unsustainable. And they, they were, you know, mini bubbles of their own right, like lumber and used cars prices in its own way. But I mean, used car prices, you may not know this. Well, you just bought a rig, so maybe you do. They okay. basically are selling for the same price as new cars, yeah. but you can't buy the new cars. So right. that stuff is going to, that, that will get rectified. The semiconductor shortage will get rectified. But some of these other forces are really secular in nature, I believe. You know, whether it's reshoring, you know, getting things going from you know, just in time inventories to just in case inventories. Uh, the green energy transition, which even Larry Fink from BlackRock is highlighted as being highly inflationary, and he's very pro-ESG. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever you believe about green energy, this is going to be the first time in, in America, uh, human history that we're going from a more efficient source of energy to a less efficient source of energy. And, and I think that we're, it, we're putting tremendous faith in our policymakers to pull this thing off. And after the experience, the abysmal experience of how they've handled COVID, do we really think they can, they're equal to the task? I don't think so. So that one alone is, but, but let's talk about MMT because as Howard Marks has said, we're doing MMT. I mean, pretty much anybody will admit that is being honest that this is MMT, modern monetary theory, which is the idea the government can just spend, doesn't have to have a budget. And you basically just keep spending for whatever you think you might need to spend money. And of course, politicians are great. They'll always come up with a reason to spend money and you just keep doing it till inflation shows up. And I think that's kind of an important point. Inflation, it'll, they'll keep doing it until inflation blows the whistle. And I think inflation is already starting to blow the whistle. But let's just say that, you know, that Jay Powell convinces the world that it's t- transitory. Well, then they're just going to keep doing more MMT. And eventually that inflation is going to become very entrenched. And inflationary expectations, which I think are already starting to take off, will become very entrenched. So I, th- I think they're playing a very dangerous game. Well, yeah, you mentioned you know Krugman a minute ago, and I think he wrote a piece last week for the New York Times where he was discussing uh, why you know I-, I think fiscal policy, the use of fiscal policy, has become more popular in in recent years, and I think this is something that we're seeing on from both sides, right? I, I, Trump essentially. Uh, cut taxes and created the largest fiscal deficit during an economic expansion in the country's history. Uh, and now we have, you know, on the other side of the, the aisle, wanting to use uh, fiscal policy for infrastructure, for green, you know, a Green New Deal and all these types of things. It seems like there's, there's nobody left really in Congress to say, hey, you know, deficits are a problem. And, and just that bipartisan, there, there are very few things that, that uh, you know, kind of engender a bipartisan agreement these days. But I think, you know, spending and, and printing the money to pay for it or, or cutting taxes and printing the money to pay for it is, is uh, something that, that uh, there's, there's agreement in Congress on. And that has important implications for inflation and the economy going forward. Yeah, I want to ask you specifically. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, one quote that I, I love that I think you you know it's a Bastiat quote. It's amazing, written two hundred plus years ago, explains kind of where we are today. Uh, it's quote: When false money, under whatever form it may take, is put into circulation, depreciation will ensue, and manifest itself by the universal rise of everything. But this rise in prices is not instantaneous and equal for all things. Sharp men, brokers, men of business will not suffer by it, for it is their trade to watch the fluctuation of prices, to observe the cause, 
and even to speculate upon it, but little tradesmen, rural workers, and ordinary workmen will bear the whole weight of it. The rich man is not any richer for it, but the poor man becomes poor by it. Yes. That's amazing that, you know, that essentially predicted what, we, what we're seeing today. Well, that's the thing. If you listen to these people that have really gone back and studied financial history, and Grant's done some great podcasts. I forget the gentleman's name, but there was one I heard fairly recently, and it was terrific on that topic, going back to the, the John Law in the 1600s in France and what he was able to pull off with the whole Mississippi uh, Mississippi Land Company scheme and how the French aristocracy, the French king was totally broke but he came in with a scheme to basically do MMT but it was not called MMT at the time and and that's what I think is that people are missing and, and, and ironically you mentioned Paul Krugman I mentioned him too because I do think he he's an interesting guy and he's obviously won a Nobel Prize but what he said about housing was you know pretty you know he, he really tries to dodge that but he also Back when MMT first was mentioned by Stephanie Kelton, who was really kind of the one that popularized it with Bernie Sanders' original presidential campaign, and he was so negative about MMT, he said it would just be a disaster and, you know, worried about high- – now that it's happening, he's cheering it on, which I just find that incredible. But, but regardless, if you look at the histories of MMTs, they – just like what you were saying in the Bastiat quote, they create an initial asset price boom. And those people that are in the know or they're wealthy and, you know, if you can, when you can see it coming, you can use leverage to really enhance your rates of return. Of course, that's what's being done, you know, by wealthy people today. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about the enormous amounts of money being made in real estate, you know, where you borrow money at 2 or 3% and you get an asset that's appreciating at 15 or 20% a year. You add that up over a while, that's, that's enormous wealth creation. So, yes, that's going on. I, I think it's creating a lot of resentment. I was talking to my friend from Austin, Texas, that we were talking about again pre-show, that he's a wealthy guy, but he goes, I've never kind of felt poor before, but I feel poor because there's so many people that are making hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And But it's it's just, it isn't going to last. I mean, this is just kind of like what happened in France in the 1600s. People got enormously wealthy in France in the 1600s, speculating on the Mississippi bubble, and and then it all came crashing down. And so that, that leads into how does it come crashing down? I, th- I think, you know, we've seen a lot of the central bankers, politicians want to fight the last war. And yes. so they look at the, the financial crisis and decide the mistake they made was not doing enough on the fiscal side. To me, that it's very clear from both fiscal and monetary that if they make a mistake, it's going to be allowing inflation to run too hot. Now, some people, I talked to Carol Sokoloff a couple of weeks ago, he says, he, yeah, he's concerned about inflation, but until velocity really starts warning of inflation, there's you know, there's really no proof that, it, that it's going to be problematic. So, Well, that is a great point. And as you know, that that's a, a big topic for me because that is how, I mean, we have had a lot of inflation this year, right? But if the only reason it hasn't been like 1970s or worse because the velocity has plunged. So just the, you know, the amount of money that circulates, it's a big debate whether money velocity is a dependent or independent variable. I personally believe it is a dependent variable. I mean, it's basically GDP and the money supply, and that's what produces the, the velocity of money. But there, I, Charles Goff has done some great work on this, and he separates it between economic velocity, which has definitely come down substantially over the last 10 years, 12 years, and then financial market velocity. And I think this is where the Fed has is, is missed it, is that they're so focused on economic velocity, they miss what's happening with financial velocity. In other words, this leveraging up of things, let's say, real estate or Bitcoin or whatever it is or the stock market. 
And there's, let's face it, there's a ton of leverage in the stock market. So that's velocity. And how do you properly reflect that? I, I think if you're simply looking at GDP, you're missing that very important component. But I do think you're going to start to see and are seeing the GDP uh, velocity come up as well. I mean, it, first of all, it's stabilized, which if, if you think about that alone, if, if the velocity is no longer falling, but the amount of money being created is still very rapid, then that's kind of inflationary. But to really see the velocity of money take off, you probably are going to have to get people into a mindset that I better spend this money today because it's going to cost me more in a year. And I think to a certain degree that's starting to happen. And when that, when that goes viral, man, you can get a whole lot of inflation. My biggest fear is that it's not going to be a matter of inflation going to 4 or 5%. It's inflation going to 10 to 15. Mm-hmm. Now, not overnight, but, but yet it can happen pretty quickly. So I, I just think if you've, you got to get back to basics. And if you know your financial history, you know that modern monetary theory leads to high inflation. And high inflation is what pops the, the asset market bubbles. Otherwise, I don't see what, what will stop this thing. I mean, the Fed will just keep circulating these immense amounts of money into the system until something stops them. Right, because we saw Powell uh, you know, attempt to raise interest rates in, in 2018 and Right. market freaked out and in Christmas of uh, 2018 remember market well. bottomed and and the Fed decided to you know change directions uh, they clearly see well, but I, if I just go off on that I think that was a very important time I think you're bringing up a critical point because he was talking a tough game you know like days before he did his 180 mm-hmm. and he was basically saying I'm not worried about the stock market and you know they've got the Fed funds rate to two and three eighths mm-hmm. And that was enough to cause, you know, a bear market or virtual bear market. It was down almost 20%. It was down 20% intraday late 2018 before he did his 180. So it just shows you how little tolerance there is. And I would, I would argue that it's two and three eighths is never going to happen, at least if you were to adjust for inflation. And so I think at some point we're going to have to do the calculation between nominal real interest rates. Mm-hmm. So you could, I guess, get to two and three eighths nominally, but in real terms, it'll probably still be negative whereas that was at least a mildly positive interest rate at that point. So their ability to get interest rates above the inflation rate is extremely limited. And that in itself is inflationary. Right. Yeah, it's something that I, I think about is, is okay, let's, let's imagine, uh, you know, core CPI stays above, not just above two, but it stays above three, four, five for a period of time. And the Fed decides, okay, we need to do something to rein this in. Where do they have to take Fed funds to, to, to do that? Precisely. Right. I mean, they have to take Fed funds at least 50 basis points above the inflation rate, I think, to try and break that inflationary psychology, which means what do they have to go to, you know, five, six, seven percent on Fed funds? And, and what would that mean for markets? Exactly. It would be, yeah, if, if, if two and three eighths was enough to, to catalyze a pretty steep and, and significant, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, panic in the markets around Christmas 2018. Sure a lot was. of people really worried that that was the end and things were going to roll over much more significantly. So if, if they have to, you know, go well above two, it, it, the market seems to, to not be <clears throat> discounting that, that possibility whatsoever. No, I think that's exactly right. It's, um, you know, they're just, they're trapped. The central banks, not just the Fed, but the central banks are trapped at trying to be able to normalize interest rates. And I think what they're, whether they're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, I think they're in a game of, of, uh, pretend and, and trying to pretend like they still are anti-inflation when they really want inflation. Mm-hmm. And you had a quote about that, right? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, it, it's my feeling that the central bank is is now, you know, we're, what we're seeing is fiscal dominance, and the Fed is not running discretionary mon- monetary policy anymore. They're being forced to monetize the debt because fiscal's taken over, um, and so then I guess that begs the question too that perhaps if the Fed can't raise interest rates, I think, uh, you know, Stephanie Kelton, who you mentioned, says the inflation uh, fighting can come from the fiscal side with, okay, we'll raise taxes to a level that will that will break the inflationary psychology. But that, to me, too, seems like a pretty, you know, significant change to, to what markets were, would be pricing and expecting today. Well, you know, the problem with raising taxes, and it can be done to a certain degree, and I think will get done to a certain degree, and there's certain things, the low-hanging fruit, like the carry interest on hedge funds and so forth. But if broad and significant tax increases are going to have a deleterious economic effect. Right. So, and, that's, and actually, the MMTers are not fans of uh, higher taxes, you know, except in extreme circumstances. So, yeah, there'll be some of that, but it won't be nearly enough to cover the enormous amounts of spending that they're doing in a I mean, this latest one, this this three trillion that was, trillion that was supposed to be six trillion, and Bernie Sanders makes this big thing like, oh, well, I guess I'm not getting all I want, but he's still very happy with the three trillion. He's, it was just a negotiating ploy, and it's and I think you're on a making a very important point because I do hear people say, well, look, and I, I heard an interview with uh, with Grant and uh, Grant Williams and and Dylan Grice. And how Dylan was really concerned about inflation back when they were first doing QEs back in 2010 and 2011. A lot of people were, mm-hmm. we weren't. We actually, um, I wrote, you know, well, you know, a lot of pieces during that, that time period saying, I don't think so because velocity is coming down. And, and what was different then is the, Fe- uh, the, the federal government, uh, from talking about fiscal policy actually became relatively tight. You know, once the worst of the, of the re- Great Recession was over, I mean, basically debt to GDP stayed pretty constant. Right, uh, and that's when you had the Tea Party. So there was a, there was a fair amount of pressure to keep federal spending under control, uh, whereas the Fed was doing its QEs, you know, one, two, three, and uh, but you didn't have both both chambers of the gun firing. And this, you know, double barrel shotgun. You got the double barrel shotgun going right now. Right. I mean, the Fed. You're right. I think what you said is exactly correct. The Fed is being forced. There's not enough buyers out there. One of my charts I have in front of me shows the 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 uh, foreign buyers used to be a big part of the Treasury market. They're they haven't increased their purchases hardly at all in recent years while the amount of government debt issuance has gone ballistic. So who is buying that debt? Well, the banks, the U.S. banks kind of have a gun to their head to do that, you know, from a regulatory uh, standpoint, and obviously the Fed. And they're doing it with, you know, fake money. And to me, that's just no question, MMT, debt monetization. And so it makes me think, you know, curious about your your opinion toward the currency. I know Louis has has been a dollar bear and, and has been right for the past couple of years. Uh, Not so I, much I, last month, but <laughs> well, I, we've seen a, a rally, uh, short term rally, but it's still making lower highs. Yes, um, good point. And, and so I, I don't think the trend you know, is a clear trend change. There, I did talk to Julian Brigden a, a few weeks ago, and, and he talks about the Fed's impossible trinity, that they can potentially keep interest rates low, prop up asset markets, but the currency will be the outlet for that. I mean, what are your, totally what are your thoughts agree, there? Totally agree. So I was listening to John, Jeff Gunlock on CNBC uh, this week, and he's basically making the same point. He's, he apparently called for a little bit of a near-term bounce in the dollar, but I think that's all it was, was an oversold bounce. I agree with you. I think 89.90 on the dollar, the DXY, is a very important support level. I believe that gets taken out and the dollar goes down fairly quickly to 80 and then eventually to 70. So I, I think, and I think frankly, that's what the powers that be want to see. 
you know, make American exports uh, more competitive and it will raise inflation, which, I mean, I'm totally a believer that this is kind of like after World War II, where we had a, about the same debt level, not quite as high. And by 1952, we had the debt level down, a debt to GDP down to about 70%. It fell 40 or 50%, even though we fought the Korean War in that time period as well. So I think that's what's going to happen. But the way they did it, I mean, people don't know, I don't think, that inflation was running, you know, 12 to 15% in the late 40s. And interest rates were suppressed. People were, you know, they, investors remembered the Great Depression. Right. So a 2% government bond, well, that's safe. It wasn't safe. In, in real purchasing power, they got crushed. And frankly, they were going to get crushed until 1980. I mean, that's when I first started the business, bonds were called certificate, certificates of confiscation because you just lost money year in and year out. And I think we're getting back into that period. It's, it's kind of a, a, a stealth death because you don't really, you still have the same nominal money, but when you go to buy something, good luck. Yeah, well, Gunlack made that same point. It was a good interview, I, I think, he gave where he was talking about, you know, real interest rates are, are so deeply negative right now. It's something we haven't seen since, since the 70s. That yes. kind of brings me to how do you, uh, you know, in terms of the investment philosophy, how do you, how do you manage this? Because this seems like a you know, paradigm shift from what we've seen virtually over the, the course of your entire career. So first of all, I want to ask you, because as an advisor uh, who's, who's been around the block and, and, <laughs> and seen, a, seen a few of these things, one of the things I, advisors bring up to me, I think it's their by far their greatest challenge right now, is trying to balance uh, managing risk in client portfolios with client risk appetites, which are potentially you know breaking through the roof right now, as they're seeing the markets have done so well. Uh, there's no evidence in the last 10 years that uh, there's any reason to do anything but put all your money in the S&P 500. So right. trying to, to, to balance, how do, you, how do you, I guess, view that balancing managing risk versus uh, risk appetites among clients who might be uh, you know, overly aggressive or dangerously aggressive? Yes, well, I think that's true. I think that almost all clients are too aggressive right now. Uh, I, I, think, I don't think there's been nearly enough rebalancing that's gone on. You know, the idea is if you're 50-50, you know, roughly half stocks and half bonds, and your bonds don't do too much and your stocks double, I mean, you're going to be like 75%, 25%, and you need to do a serious rebalancing. But people don't do that, hardly ever. I mean, for one thing, there's a lot of capital gains to pay. I mean, that's that, we're wrestling with that very issue right now. Uh, and then you've got the what you said that, you know, if you cut, cut them back down to 50% and the stock market keeps going up, it's like, well, why'd you do that? And I'm, yeah, I'm making good money, but I could be making a lot more money. And I mean, obviously in every one of these bull markets and especially bull markets that, that flip into true bubble territory, the greed factor becomes, you know, a, a, just an enormous challenge to anybody that's trying to be prudent. Right. And it's one thing, it's, it's hard enough with your own money, but with other people's money, it's really tough. You know, fortunately, our client base has been kind of called out over the years. Yeah. So the, the, the hot money people have largely gone. And, you know, fortunately, you mentioned 2018. I mean, I think one of the problems that some people have that have a bearish persuasion is there are a little bit of stop clocks. 2018 was a great buying opportunity, and we bought like crazy. But for us, the thing that really saved the day was COVID, frankly. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that, but... We had some great intel that COVID was worse than popularly believed. But even I, I'm a fan of Scott Gottlieb and what he was saying back in, in uh, late January, early February. So basically, we did a tremendous amount of preventative selling. Then when the panic hit, 
we did, I think you know this, that my belief was in the next crisis, the Fed was going to buy corporate debt. And it might seem like, an, seem like an arcane point, but as you know, credit spreads are enormously important to the financial markets. And when the Fed says, I'm going to buy corporate debt and credit spreads have blown out like they did during early COVID, those credit spreads just crash. And that crash of credit spreads puts rocket fuel into mm-hmm. stocks. Yeah. And since we felt that was coming, we were, you know, buying more aggressively than I think we ever have in the history of Evergreen, right during the worst of COVID. And so fortunately, we're in a position to say, hey, you know, we've been making really good money. I mean, yeah. we, we've got balanced accounts that have made more than the S&P from the low of the S&P. Now we're kind of giving up some ground here lately because we're now seeing this, you know, we're getting back into the, the fang me stocks uh, going up and everything else kind of going down. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I think the market breadth here lately is concerning. Uh, I think that's one of the warning flags out there right now, but it is an extremely challenging uh, task to try to keep people rational because the Fed has been, I mean, it was one thing if it's for a couple of years, but when it goes on for, I mean, the market has looked expensive for seven years, seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. Anybody warning about that looks like a fool. I mean, you can kind of get away with it for a year or two, but after seven or eight years, you've, you've lost, I mean, poor John Hussman, who I think is a brilliant guy, Yeah. but it's tough to to fight it. Right. And so on your website, it says, I, I guess, to describe your investment philosophy, uses the, the, the term dynamic asset management. And I guess that's kind of what you were describing with what you do. Is that really kind of active decisions to, to get long markets? Or, or you also talk about in some of your EVAs, too, how you use kind of a tactical rebalancing, using opportunities of you know fear and greed uh, as opportunities to rebalance. Uh, is that mostly just a rebalancing <clears throat> framework, or do you use more of kind of active buying and selling, uh, and, and I guess adjusting those allocations based on your perception of the market cycle where we are in the cycle? Well, it's it's both. I mean, I, we. I mean, I look at it at the micro level and the macro level. So we have our individual companies. I mean, we are kind of a dinosaur in that way, and that we actually do research on individual companies. And most of our portfolios are made up of individual names, you know, which as you, you're aware, that's that's pretty rare these days. So there's a lot of decision making that goes into that part of it. But then there's the overall asset allocation, which you know some of our team members would say that's where I mean, the, picking good stocks matters, but not a lot. What really matters is making the right macro asset allocation calls, and that's probably true. But you know, the problem is with macro is I'm sure you've heard from some of your other interviewees is that. What's what's looked like the right thing to do for a very long time has been the wrong thing to do. I mean, this is this is what I think Dylan Rice was saying lately, and how he, you know, Krugman used to just bug him, but he goes, "Hey, he's been more right than I have been for the last ten years." Mm-hmm. And we have that at, at Gafgal with Anatole Koleski, and I think people that are of a Keynesian persuasion have been the ones that have been dead right because they keep saying, "Hey, this is working. This is working." I, I can remember this at the Malden conferences six, seven years ago, and uh, all the people that were the you know, Paul McCulley, I mean, they've been right. And so it's for, for people that have less confidence in what I would call fake money policies, it's been brutal. But when and I think we've seen this even with the inflation trade re- recently is that when everybody is lined up and, you know, on one side of the boat and saying, for example, I think, you know, the commodities are going to the moon. You probably want to be taking your profits and getting more defensive. Right. And when everybody's really bullish on the stock market, like they are right now, you probably want to be getting more defensive on stocks too. Mm-hmm. 
because if nothing else, what it does is it creates the buying power for when the next shakeout happens. Right. And this, to, I think this is to your point about how do you dynamically manage money? So if, if you've gotten your portfolios up to 70% stocks, they really should be 50, you get them down to 50 or even 40, you've got a lot of cash on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. So when things get hit, so even in a, in a more of a trading range environment, you can add value with that type of thing. But you're not making these binary, which I think have been career destroying for some people, I'm out of the market. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this market's crazy. I'm getting out totally. You know, we don't do that. We yeah. we try to stay within a you know a range for a portfolio. I, I think that that speaks to the fact that you use and, and it's ref- refreshingly old fashioned to use bottom up individual security analysis. I mean, to me, you can't be a value investor unless you're doing individual security selection because uh, you know the way Ben Graham described it. You can't analyze an, e- an ETF. You can't. You know where's the margin of safety in the aggregate valuation and things. And so, uh, and, and then using uh, value uh, as a factor is also not the same as using a margin of safety in a specific security where you're in. You understand the balance sheet and, and these types of things. So, I think it's a great point that. Macro, you can have macro concerns, but still have micro opportunities that show up, and, and you're not going to let those macro concerns maybe get in the way of you taking advantage of. That's very well said. I think that that is crucial because I have seen that just time and time again. I won't name any names, but it's like when really bad stuff happens, you know, the bears don't change their tune, and it's like, you know, wait a second. I mean, maybe the market's only down twenty or thirty, but some of these things are down sixty or seventy. Right. You, you do get just phenomenal. And the other thing is too that. Uh, you know, in addition to the fact that I believe that hard assets, as you do, are going to be the best performers in the next decade, I think these international markets, which have lagged the U.S. so severely over the last decade, there are some exceptional values and, and, and great companies. I mean, you know, obviously, when you're a value investor or even a GARP investor, growth at a reasonable price, as we are, there's always value traps, things that look cheap, but they should be cheap. And there's things that look expensive that probably – should be more expensive. And right. our younger members of our team have done a great job of identifying companies like, let's say, Lululemon. That is, you know, it's was it's more of a, yeah, it's more of a qualitative call and saying, hey, I think this is just a great franchise. And and, and one of the advantages I think of that approach, and I struggle with it because usually you're paying a high price. Right. But one of the advantages, computers can't figure that out. Right. Computers are not good at saying this is a truly great company. And I know because you know everybody in my whole circle is buying their product, you know, kind of the Peter Lynch, what Peter Lynch used to do. They don't, people don't do that anymore. And I think that's a pretty good way to manage money too. Yeah. So we do have a strategy that does that. It's old school, but Phil Fisher, the the scuttlebutt, you know, it's it's, you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, I'm talking about uh, one of Ben Graham's, uh, I'm sorry, Warren Buffett's heroes. who wrote, uh, I think common stocks and uncommon profits where he talks about the key to his success was that scuttlebutt was, you know, okay, what are my friends buying? And I think Peter Lynch maybe took it from Phil, Phil Fisher. No, it's um, it's true, but it, it yeah. is. It, I think for somebody that's more value oriented, like him, because you, invariably you you are having to pay a high price. But sometimes paying a high price is still a bargain. Right. Yeah. One of the tactics too, I wanted to just make sure we we got in this conversation. You have so many great tactics that you write about in these EVAs. Is, is you mentioned that a lot of people are comfortable with dollar cost averaging when they're buying, but they don't think about that when they're selling, and that can be such a valuable thing for when you have just a home run in the portfolio. That is, I'm really glad you brought that up because that, you know, using Bitcoin as an example, and I already brought up my friend who's quite wealthy, but says he's never felt so poor because so many, there's so many billionaires around him, but he got into crypto really early and made a lot of money. And, you know, I started telling him, Hey, you should be trimming, you know, some of your, when it was, I think when it hit 30,000, 
yeah. maybe maybe upper 20s. Because I did respect that breakout that happened at 20,000. That's something else we could talk about, the importance of these multi-year breakouts. And sure enough, with Bitcoin, once it blew through 20,000, it was off to the races. But I, and I said just systematically, every time in the case of Bitcoin, you probably give it a 40 or 50% band. Every time it goes up 40 or 50%, you know, take a third, take, you know, maybe a half off. I mean, just be merciless in selling it down when it gets into these bubble phases. And he didn't really do a kind of, has done it recently, but it is, the more volatile an asset class is, the more essential that is. And I don't know any asset class that's as volatile as the cryptos. Mm-hmm. That's how you can take, because that's, that's fake money. I mean, that's just right. one of those things. I mean, I remember a buddy telling me that when he bought his expensive house in the Bay Area in, in the late 90s with uh, his, his stock options on his high-tech company. So this is just monopoly money. And it's true. But if you can convert monopoly money to real money, and I think that's actually maybe one of the most important topics to, to think about today, because there is so much monopoly out there money, yeah. uh, money out there right now, people have a chance to convert a huge amount of monopoly money to real money. Now, what's real money? Well, it's not U.S. dollars. I mean, I would argue it's it's gold and silver and and oil and and I think the the case for oil being in an acute shortage over the next few years is extremely uh, extremely compelling. And I mean, that's maybe an interesting thing to talk about yeah. is the, the the shape of the crude oil I, I curve. I want to get to that, but I, okay. Before we do, I think I just want to emphasize this point again about we see so many people in these meme stocks. Yes, I don't think they appreciate the fact that Michael Burry was in GameStop. Early on. Uh, you know, buying it early on. And when it screamed to 500 bucks a share, whatever, he's out. Same thing with all the cryptos. You have uh, Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller talking about, yeah, crypto, just like you. When they saw it, you were seeing it break out above 20,000. That's one of Paul Tudor Jones' favorite signals. And it's clearly something that you pay close attention to. Yes. It's a great buying signal. Uh, and that momentum carries it higher. But you can be sure that Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller aren't going to have diamond hands when it comes to when these things roll over <laughs> right. and start depreciating, like like Bitcoin is doing now, frankly. Yes. No, you're right. And and the meme stocks, and, you know, made, uh, I've got the cover right here of Barron's from last week. And here it is, meme stocks defy gravity. So, and guess what? This week, <laughs> gravity got them. You know, usually when you see a cover like that, you, you really get on guard. The Economist, of course, is famous for their uh, wrong way cover stories, but uh, in fact, Barron's had the inflation yeah, cover story yeah. back uh, back in May, right before inflation fever broke. Yeah. Just as a as a footnote, we kind of touch on this, but I just want to emphasize that what's shocking to me today is that people like David Rosenberg I respect and Lacey Hunt, who I respect, and Paul Krugman not so much, but they're they're doing victory dances right now about this inflation's dead. Right. The inflation th- thing is over, and that's why I think. Great piece I read here recently by Jerry Minnick. There's a second inflation wave coming. Yeah. That'd be one of the key takeaways from our discussion. Today. I believe there's a second inflation wave coming, and I also believe we're in the third oil crisis, and it relates. Well, let's get into that in terms of you know how you because clearly yes, there is this idea that the reflation trade is dead. We're seeing lumber prices come back. Everyone's pointing to that, even even though. Oil's still pretty close to its highs, and, and the fundamentals there look really strong. But the we, stocks have been spanked. Right, yeah, steel prices are still real high, but everybody is saying this reflation trade is dead. So your thoughts on that? Well, again, I think it's the great head fake that because almost everybody's focused on some of these commodity prices like lumber, and it's broken so hard, and the treasury yield has come down a little bit, and Jay Powell has done a really good job of, of job owning here lately that inflation, uh, you know, that they're, they've got the tools to, to rein it in, should it accelerate, which they do. They just won't use them. So that's what's, what I think is creating a great opportunity because these, these secular inflationary forces are so powerful that it's, it's going to get to things like copper. 
a lot of agricultural. I mean, there's this stuff the Fed can't print and is in short supply. And I think particularly those areas that are anti-ESG. So let's think about oil. I mean, oil, you know, whether peop most people would admit it, is essential to the functioning of the world. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, it's very hard to produce new oil. And you've seen the CapEx charts. I mean, the new drilling is still well below where it needs to be just to maintain U.S. oil production where it is. I think very few people realize how rapidly shale oil depletes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to be 40%. It's come down a little bit. It's but like 35% decline rate per year. Yeah. So you've got to drill like crazy just to keep it even, and we're not doing that. Right. And that's why, I mean, this is the first time in history. Don't, don't just believe me. Just look at what's happening in reality. you got oil. Brent hit 75. WTI almost hit 75. And there's no production. In fact, U.S. production is still declining a little bit. It's at least kind of leveled out. But that's never happened before. And part of it is due to the fact that, you know, they, the best prospects have been drilled even at the Permian, which is the most prolific. But you think about things like copper. You know, we're going to produce millions of additional EVs. Whether people want to buy them, I don't know, but let's say they do. But where are they getting enough copper and cobalt and lithium? It's going to require a tremendous amount of environmental degradation, but just, I think, physical impossibility to come up with those that uh, amount of minerals and metals. So because there's this ESG situation, it's creating an in inflationary effect that we haven't had in the past. I mean, typically in the past, if oil prices went up a lot, there'd be, a, you know, producers would go crazy. There'd be all kinds of drilling activity. It's not happening. And yet the demand's going to be there. So I think you're going to have an acute shortage of oil. You already are. But I think that shortage of oil is going to get more intense. OPEC's going to open up. They're going to go back to full production. And it's still not going to be enough. Yeah, I think if there's one thing, if you look through market history for long term, not just the U.S. stock market, but all markets, uh, is that where capital flows, returns go down. And when capital is starved, returns go up. And, and the whole, exactly. the whole uh, impetus or the, I guess the whole push for green, this green uh, revolution and ESG and all is to starve uh, commodities, industries of capital. And so right. they're inevitably going to push the returns up and they're going to, exactly. right? Because you right. starve them of capital, production goes <clears throat> down and supplies tighten and, and demand is, is actually going up. And like you point out, it's, a, it's such a, it's such a great point. So in terms of investing, um, how are you positioning clients for this, this paradigm shift in terms of inflation and, and, the dynamics going going forward. Well, we're definitely overweight, as you probably tell, resource-based securities. And we have a lot of energy. A lot of the energy tends to be high cash flow energy. That's one of the lovely things about energy stocks right now. It's mm -hmm. one of the few places on the planet where you can get, you know, 6-7% type of yield, you know, with upside. Uh, we do like the miners very much. I mean, gold prices corrected, but now they're creeping up. And the gold mining stocks are very depressed. So that's an area where we've got a lot of exposure uh, we do like some of the agricultural areas, which have, you know, they've been kind of just so-so here lately, but I think there's a lot of inherent value there. But, you know, I guess I think the most important thing for an investor right now is to kind of forget about the S&P and what it's doing mm -hmm. and think about real value. Because a, a fascinating point that I, I think you can win a lot of money on is if you looked at these last 20 years, which are supposedly so great for the U.S. stock market, but you, you deflated the S&P by gold. It's been in a bear market for 20 years. Now, it's had some bear market rallies, including lately, but overall, it's gone down in gold terms. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think so much of what we're seeing is really a money illusion. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that we're doing is we're trying to, because we manage a lot of money on the bond side, and 
and back in 2017, 18, when the Fed was <laughs> tightening that, you know, bold attack at two and three eighths and on inflation. And we were extending duration because you could get, you know, three and a half percent with uh, even five, six year CDs. But uh, after COVID, we basically sold all of our longer term bonds. We got, well, I shouldn't say all, but almost all. And went into floating rate, went to short duration. Now we're trying to pivot more into international bonds. And actually, GovCal is coming out with an Asian bond fund. I've been mm -hmm. bugging Louis for two years to come out with an Asian government bond fund. So strong currencies. Mm -hmm. So really, what we're not, we're not, the yield is a little better, you know, two and a half, three percent, something like that. But the big thing is it's not in U.S. dollars. Right. And that's where I think people are really going to, I think they get crushed by having too much exposure to the U.S. dollar and in U.S. dollar based bonds. I think those will be the two sacrificial lambs of this getting our debt to GDP down to a you know, 60, 70% level. So I think, in, you know, just the 1970s, if that, I agree with Gunlock. I think we're going into a 1970s type of period. And if you were a U.S. bond investor uh, savvy enough to shift into German boons back in 1971, you did great. Mm -hmm. If you stayed in U.S. treasuries, you got your head handed to you. Yeah. So diversify into real assets. And get some type of currency diversification. It seems like gold, you know, fits that bill to some extent too. Absolutely. Well, to totally change directions, this has been. I I, I could pick your brain for hours. Honestly, this has been. <laughs> I've not much left of other questions. We might have to do a round two at some point. That'd be great. Uh, but to totally change directions, I, I'm curious to know. I'm, I, and I'm I'm distracted by the lake again. Looking down. <laughs> what What do you do for? You mentioned boating. Um, is there something to like hit a mental reset button and kind of take you away from the markets for a little bit? Maybe there's a hobby or something that helps you uh, just like I said, hit, hit some type of a mental reset button or even makes you think about things in a different way, helps you, you know, be a better investor. That's a great question that nobody's ever asked me before. And, and it is appropriate to be looking at this beautiful lake and watching these boats go by. I think boating has been a great mental, uh, I guess, comforter for me over the last six or seven or eight years, because there've been some really hard times in those. For a while, I called them my nightmare years because it was just, just fighting this thing. And, and you constantly feel like, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing for clients and it's hurting my clients on a near-term basis. And, and that's a, you know, I, I feel for John Hussman terribly because he's a great man and a bright man. And, but like I said, fortunately for us, we've had some opportunities that gave us a chance. But during the worst of those, I mean, being out at the time we had a home on Lake Washington and going out almost every night, that was a great way for me to decompress. You know, there's just something about being on the water. Yeah. That, uh, and then, to be honest, uh, my wife's cocktail doesn't hurt either. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, sometimes in this business, you got to take comfort where you can find it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's perfect. I've, I've grown up around the water and, and done spent a lot of time boating myself. And there's something about just reconnecting with, with nature in whatever respect that is that uh, most, most speaks to you. And so, um, Dave, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you. I'm always a... Grateful for anybody that cares about what I have to say. Well, At my age, it's fewer and fewer, yeah, by the way. Yeah, no, and I absolutely uh, do. I read everything you write. I encourage everybody to uh, check out Evergreen and, and, and uh, the regular EVAs that you put out because I find them invaluable. Well, thank you, Jesse. Thank you very, very much. It's been a lot of fun. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. 
As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.